Gals. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm with my co-host, Amy. In this week's episode, we are having the privilege of chatting with Roger Montgomery. So for those of you who don't know, Roger Montgomery is the CEO and founder of Montgomery Investment Management, where he runs a team of 14 and manages $1 billion funds under management. So Montgomery offer a suite of equity funds to provide clients um, with both choice and convenience, including the Montgomery Fund and the Montgomery Small Companies Fund, just to name a few. And so Rogers had many years of experience working in financial and equity markets. Um, and so prior to founding Montgomery Management, Roger founded and ran boutique funds management business. And in 2010, Roger has published his first book, Value Able, which has become a bestseller. And Value Able is a value investing book for the stock market where he shares three simple steps for value investing and online trading. Uh, so we're so excited to have you on, Roger. How are you today? Oh, great to be with you guys. Um, thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to our conversation. So am I. This is actually a perfect storm to get you into having a chat with us today. Um, so the first few questions I was going to ask, just uh, normal cheesy stuff about your favourite investment and why you hold them, I want to um, ask those later because we've just um, seen another uh, sort of variation of COVID-19 rear its ugly head and there was quite a reaction over the weekend, the beginning of the weekend. Um, I was at an event, the 50th on um, Saturday with a whole bunch of um, finance people and that was all that was being spoken about. So I'm curious to get an idea of what your thoughts are with this net new outbreak and what you think sort of there's been so much volatility and ups and downs and, you know, I think a lot of overreaction in my opinion. There does need to be some market reaction. We've, you know, we're going to ask about that, uh, sorry, in my opinion, again, um, with inflation and whatnot. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts about what's been going on with the markets over the last uh, nearly week? So so there's a lot. In, let me unpack that. There's a lot in there. Um, yes, there is. Sorry. <laughs> so we'll, uh, we'll start with, We'll start with Omicron and mm -hmm. you know, the current variation of the virus, um, or, and then we can talk about inflation as well. Um, so with respect to the virus, what the world doesn't need and what the market doesn't want is um, a, a variant of the virus that can evade the current crop of vaccines. So that is a really bad outcome, and that's why the market reacts the way it does, because it's questioning you know, it sort of, it, it sells first and then asks questions later. But the question on everyone's mind is, will this virus, well, there's two questions actually, is the virus more deadly? We know it's more transmissible. Is it more deadly? Um, we can track and we already do this. We track the hospital admissions in Pretoria and Johannesburg. So we can actually see uh, how hospital admissions are going up. Now, two weeks ago, there was, over the course of the week, there were about 123 admissions to the major hospitals in Pretoria and Joburg. So that's in the Gauteng region of South Africa, which is right near, well, when I say near, it's about 460 kilometres southeast of Botswana, where the first cases were uh, observed. Um, and the reason they were observed and the reason why we thought it was a different variant was because the, um, the symptoms were different. People weren't losing their sense of taste. They weren't losing their sense of smell. But they were being really fatigued. So that gives the market some hope that, um, that it's not going to be more deadly, that the symptoms are actually more mild than the Delta variant. Um, 
but hospital admissions are going up. So we're in this sort of twilight zone where it looks like it's more transmissible. That's a bad thing. Um, it looks like it might not be um, it might not be more deadly. That's a good thing. But what is worrying is that hospital admissions have gone from about 123 two weeks ago to over 680 this week. So or last week rather, and we're still counting this week's. So you usually get a lag between infection and hospitalisation, and then you get a lag from hospitalisation to death. So everyone's worried that this increase in hospitalisations means the symptoms are very bad, requiring hospitalisation, and they may lead to more deaths. And if that's the case, um, that that's a that's a negative for the market. And then we're waiting, we've got to wait another week and a half or thereabouts for Pfizer to come out with the results of their lab testing on whether or not their vaccine um, is useful against the 32-odd mutations that are on the spike protein for this particular version of the virus. So so there's a lot in that. Um, There's some positives, but the really big negative that the market is on tenterhooks about is is whether or not, one, it's more deadly, uh, and two, whether the, it can evade the current crop of vaccines. We don't have answers to those two questions yet, and so we're in that sort of twilight zone, that middle ground. So you released an article listing three reasons why you're still bullish about the equity markets. With everything that's sort of going on, is that still your view? Well, it is my view in the absence of bad news about the virus. So if we don't have bad news about the virus, then I'm still really bullish. And that goes back to your earlier question or reference to inflation. So so a lot of people are worried about inflation. Let's just put the um, the Omicron to one side. Um, In the absence of that, people are worried about inflation. They're worried about it because... Um, it's it's spiked. Um, it's much higher than was previously anticipated, particularly in the United States, where I think in October inflation came in at about 6.2%, and that is a lot higher than what the US Federal Reserve, the central bank in the United States, was predicting. Uh, and you know, in March, they predicted 2.6, and in September, they predicted 4.2, and it's come in at 6.2 or thereabouts. So that's a lot higher. And at the same time that those inflation numbers are going up, the central bank still has its foot firmly on the pedal of stimulating the economy. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're still buying something like $105 billion US dollars worth of bonds. Um, and what they do, and for those that don't know, basically what happens is the US government runs a deficit. It's spending more than it earns from tax. And so it has to borrow money. The way it borrows money is by issuing bonds. So it issues those bonds and it sells bonds and other people have to buy the bonds. And the biggest buyer of those bonds is the central bank. The central bank, and that's what quantitative easing is. So the central bank buys those bonds, gives cash to the government and puts cash into the system and then that cash goes and spreads out through the economy. The problem that we've got at the moment is that, and the reason why it buys bonds is because it keeps the bond price up. There's an inverse relationship between bond prices and interest rates. So by buying bonds, it keeps interest rates down on on the long end of the yield curve. And, And so that's fine if you want to stimulate an economy and keep it growing, but it's not fine if inflation is going to go up because inflation reduces your standard of living. It's more expensive to buy anything. And nobody wants things to be more expensive. 
And that's why discounts, that's why sales are so popular. You know, Cyber Monday and Black Friday, they're popular because people want things cheap. They don't want to have to pay more. Inflation means you're paying more. So the debate at the moment is, and I've seen some headlines in the press where some commentators are actually saying the Fed are idiots, the US Federal Reserve are idiots, and our Reserve Bank is probably the same. That's what they're saying um, because we're seeing all this inflation and yet they're still firmly accelerating the economy and that's going to be bad. But in actual fact, I don't think it's bad. I think inflation is transitory. I think part of the reason we've got inflation is because we're coming out of a recession that was related to the pandemic lockdowns. And so we're, we're coming out of that. And in every single recovery from a recession, you have accelerating inflation. But what will happen is next year, the, the rate of price increases will be slower. And so we'll look at 6% this year, and next year it'll be 5% or 4%. And so that's disinflation. Now, right throughout history, going all the way back to the 70s, whenever you get a growing economy with disinflation, it's really, really good for innovative growth companies. It's really good for the stock market, particularly those innovative growth companies that have pricing power. So that's the primary reason why I think it's going to be good for the stock market because this inflation surge is related to a recovery out of a recession, which we know is transitory. And it's also related to bottlenecks in the supply chain. So that that's, if you're trying to buy Christmas presents for your family, trying to buy a bike, trying to buy a car, you can't get one. And that's why the prices are really high. But you will be able to get one eventually because the great thing about capitalism is it responds to higher prices by delivering more. Now, businesses say, hey, I can get you know $500 a litre for that or I can get $4,000 a tonne for that. I'm going to make more of that. Uh, and they will, and that'll bring the price back down again. It's cyclical. And we've seen it before. But as I said to you in our chat before we began recording this particular conversation, news is just new people experiencing old things. Um, and, you know, and for everybody who's young, this is a huge shock. But, you know, anyone who's been through this before knows it'll pass. And we don't have to worry. That's why when we're talking uh, to our audience about investing, it's, you know, when we've got to be aware of what the markets are doing and educate ourselves by getting people like yourself on. But it's also about going, what is the, the purpose of this investment? What's the time frame? And, you know, when things are in that time where things, you know, the bad news hits and the markets react and there's sort of, you know, we see this sort of surge of panic with behavioural economics basically at its best where markets just drop. That's not the time to liquidate. That's not the time to go, all right, oh, shit, I'm going to sell my, excuse my language, but I'm going to sell my share portfolio or my, my assets here and I'm going to just put everything to cash. That is absolutely not the time to be doing that because all you've got to do is crystallize that loss. As you just said, it is cyclical. There's going to be times where things correct themselves. They'll change and move and go forward. And you've got to remember what the the end game is that so there's a lot of opportunity everything you were just saying just then Roger sounds to me like even though we're in such an uncertain time especially with this new potential issue of a, another strain of uh, COVID-19 the Omicron there's still opportunity in the markets there's still an opportunity to invest so what are your thoughts about where do you see those opportunities? You've sort of given us a bit of insight there too. Well, I might take a step back from answering that question, and I will answer the question. Mm -hmm. um, but 
There's two ways to approach the stock market. You can see it the way most people do, and that is you're buying bits of paper that wiggle on a screen, you know, and they go up today and they go down tomorrow, and that's all you're doing. And you hope that you buy the ones that go up, and if they go down, it's a disaster. You actually mentioned that in your book, and you're like, you yeah. call that speculation, uh, or that like Correct. that's people speculating when they're not actually yeah, understanding. But it's very, very common, mm. and people think that's investing. Yeah. Sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and the other way to approach it is to think that each of those bits of paper represent a stake in a business. Now, if you read the Australian Financial Review every year, they bring out a Rich 200 list um, and then the, the, uh, the Australian does a Rich 250 list. And all of those people, without exception, I mean, nobody in there is, uh, you know, somebody who has a job. How did you become one of the richest people in Australia? I worked for a bank and I still work at the bank. You know, they run businesses. There's nothing wrong with working for a bank, but the wealthy people have become wealthy by owning businesses for a long period of time. The stock market gives you the opportunity, even if you do work at a bank, it gives you the opportunity to own a piece of a business. Now, how do businesses create value? Businesses create value by earning a profit, and then they start with equity, right? There's a bit of equity on the balance sheet. That's what you've put in the business. And then you earn a profit. And a little bit of that profit gets paid out as a dividend. And the other bit gets put into the equity. So the equity grows, right? And then it earns a bigger profit because it's got more equity. It earns a bigger profit. And it passes some of that out as a dividend. And then it retains some and adds it again. And so the value is created by a company retaining some of its profit and building its equity up by retaining that profit. And the bigger the proportion of profit relative to the equity, the bigger the return on equity, the faster it will create value. Now, if you can find a business, think about it this way. You've got a $10 million bank account and it's earning 20%. That's worth it. That'd be really attractive. You know, most people would say, yeah, give me that $10 million bank account. That'd be great, right? <laughs> But even more attractive is a bank account with $100 million earning 20% or a billion dollars earning 20%, right? That's what that, And a business that can sustain a high rate of return on equity on growing amounts of equity capital, that's that bank account that goes from $10 million to a billion. And that's what you want to do. You want to find the businesses that do that. Now, there are businesses on the stock market that do that. There are businesses that we know of that are doing 20 30 40% return on equity. Or if they're not now, we know they're going to in the in the not too distant future. The problem is when you put them on the stock market, they go up and down because of Omicron. You know, they go they go up and down because of inflation. They're worried about what the Fed's doing. They're worried about you know whether we're going to go into a recession, whether unemployment's going up. All of these things that people worry about moves the share price around. But if it's a good business, it just keeps creating value every year. And eventually the stock market, even when it panics about Omicron, it'll eventually react to the value that's being created and the price will go back up. So you talk about risk and opportunity. The, the risk is the stock market. The opportunity is presented by turning it off. Just turn the stock market off. Don't worry about the Omicron and all these other things. Mm. Just find really, really good businesses that are creating value, buy them and own them for a long time, and you will become very wealthy. 
That's beautiful advice. And you could have seen me just speak the biggest smile listening to everything you say, because it's stuff that I absolutely love, which is why I'm in this industry myself. And I'm also an investor in private equity, as well as my own share portfolio, as well as a portfolio we build our clients. So I love exactly, you know, that's what gets me excited is actually the research part is looking at the businesses. Sure. And getting excited about what they're doing and what their vision is and that sort of thing. So that's the coolest thing about investing. And for our listeners that we've spoken about this on a regular basis is that you don't, you don't have to have a huge amount of money, but you could still be an owner of one of the businesses you actually use on a regular basis. You could actually have a stake in, say, for example, you know, you might, you might be a banker at Commonwealth Bank and you could actually own a portion of the bank. And that's the beautiful thing about actually investing. So I love what you just said. Thank you for that. That was fantastic. No, no problem. I was just gonna... yeah. That was Sorry, the big. Ahead. I was about to say that was the biggest takeaway that I took when I actually read your book. Um, because yeah, it wasn't about it wasn't about watching the stock market. It's about looking at the actual company and what they're doing and are they making money? Um, you know, like the the debt component and all that uh, with the return on equity and yeah. So I found that was the biggest takeaway that I took when I read your book. And I think I've taken that with me throughout my journey. Cause I read it years ago. Um, yeah. A couple of years back, but yeah, definitely. Well, you know, people don't know this, but you, you, Amy, you were saying you were at a, a, a barbecue on the weekend or a party on the weekend. And, you know, no doubt there was champagne. <laughs> yeah. There probably was a lot. Um, there's a lot to celebrate now that we're out of lockdown. Um, but you can own um, Moet Hennessy. You can own Louis Vuitton, LVMH. You can buy shares in those businesses. They're the products that you're buying today, businesses are selling those products. You can own those businesses. Um, they're available on the stock market. Uh, and, you know, um, I'm, I'm wearing uh, eyeglasses. You know, I'm wearing uh, a pair of glasses. I've got lots of different pairs of glasses. But, you know, there is a company listed in France that owns Ray-Ban, that it owns you know, it owns most of the big brands in in eyewear. And if you're wearing contact lenses, um, you know, it makes the contact lenses. You know, there are those transition glasses that go darker in the sun and whatever. They invented that. There's a company. So basically everything you touch and everything you do, there is a company. You know, everyone has one of these. You know, and everyone mm -hmm. knows that Apple, you know, you can own shares in Apple. Um I'm, I'm watching very, very closely what's happening in the metaverse at the moment. I'm fascinated oh, by NFTs. Me too, NFTs, agreed. I'm also really and fascinated as well. has a portfolio of NFTs <laughs> that um, have done really, really well. You know, some of them have gone up a hundredfold in a couple of days. Um, it's crazy, crazy what's going on out there. And Apple, Apple is, you know, the next generation of technology that replaces the phone. What's that going to be? Is it going to be uh, augmented reality eyeglasses? If it is... And everyone's going to be entering the metaverse and they're going to be flexing their, you know, their NFTs on their wall in their virtual room. You know, is that, is that, that's going to mean Apple has to sell a billion or two billion of these uh, augmented reality glasses. Uh, you know, so there's still massive opportunity. People look at the stock price and they say, well, Apple's gone up a lot. But what's it going to be in 10 years' time or 15 years' time? Is it going to be selling more product? Is it going to be selling them at a higher price? And if you can work that out, you can identify the businesses that are going to create value and they're the ones that you want to own. And then you can turn the stock market off and not worry about what Joe Biden says or worry about Donald Trump being re-elected and all those other things that people run about worrying. Yeah, when I first heard about NFTs, I thought, who would want to own a virtual artwork? 
And then when I started hearing about the metaverse and all of all the things that are involved with how you can actually integrate NFTs and how they're used to kind of distinguish your, your you know, your status and, and all of that, I'm like, this is just the real world in a virtual system. But yeah. It sounds crazy. There are companies that are already designing and releasing um, fashion that you can only see with augmented reality glasses or in the metaverse. And yet people are paying thousands of dollars for a pair of runners or for a jacket that can only be seen with the right glasses. Um, you know, I could send you guys links oh, Millions on those, of dollars. You know? Some of them are selling for like millions of dollars. It's crazy. Yes, it's incredible. And then you've got companies like Adidas and Nike who have already bought land in metaverse on metaverse <laughs> islands That's and they've crazy. already patented they patented the, the technology to release their runners in the metaverse. Um, it's it's insane what's going on. There's an entire universe being created out there under people's noses, and yet only one percent are even talking about it at the moment. And my fear as a fund manager is that we're buying equities, we're buying businesses, but are we going to be relevant in twenty years' time? Or you know, is are the Julias of the world going to be investing in a completely different? universe a completely different place and so we've got to be on top of all of these new developments um, and so we're trying to think you know which are the businesses that are going to do well in that environment um, is it coinbase which yeah. you can buy i was going to say can you provide States? insights into what kinds of businesses that you guys are looking at in terms of the metaverse well, there's, and- a, there's a lot you know there's a couple of things that's one of the themes so you know businesses like apple are really interesting um, but i still think people are going to be wanting to do real things. You know, there's a company called Tule. Anyone anyone who's got roof racks on their cars or carrying bikes on their cars, Tule is listed. You know, we own Tule in the in one of the Poland funds, um, the small companies, small and mid-cap companies funds. Then people like drinking. You know, they're going to drink whether they're in the metaverse. You know, you're still going to have to drink, right? And so Fever Tree um, is, you know, is has been around for a few years now, but it's taking massive market share in tonic water. Um, uh, for people who like GNTs, uh, and you know they're listed in the UK, and uh, Pol- the Poland small and mid cap fund owns those. So they're the sorts of businesses that we think are still real world businesses. But in the metaverse, you know, we're, we're interested in in the new developments. A lot of them are unlisted. You know, they're 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 raising money through private equity and venture capital. Um, they're not listed at the moment. Mm. But Coinbase is one that I think is really interesting. Coinbase has a stake in um, OpenSea. OpenSea is the platform, the biggest platform for trading NFTs. Crazy. Um, or non-fungible tokens. Yeah. So we think Coinbase is really interesting. You could also buy um, an, an ETF, an exchange-traded fund that's listed in Australia. It was listed by um, BetaShares. Uh, it's called CRYP, C-R-Y-P. It owns 10% of that fund is in Coinbase. Um, but it also owns- I'm trying to get Vinny on from uh, BetaShares. Yeah, I know Vinny really well. Yes, so do we. So I was on the phone to him yesterday, so he'll be on soon and I'm going to be asking him about that because I've been watching these uh, sort of more crypto ETFs that have just started coming out yeah. in the last couple of weeks and interestingly another quite phenomenal how quickly they are growing. They will be extremely volatile, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I agree with you 100%. The NFT world doesn't produce income, so, you know, it's an asset that people will dump very quickly if they think it's going to fall. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a long-term future for NFTs, for the metaverse and for, um, you know, uh, blockchain 
blockchain is going to be incredibly Insane. disruptive for the world, um, but it will be volatile in the interim. You know, it can fall 90% or 95% and people need to realise that's probably the opportunity to buy it, not, uh, not to run for the hills. But, yeah. um, Amy, you were talking about, you were talking about um, you know, a long-term approach to investing and the way to think about investing is the same way you think about buying a property. You know, you, you don't, you don't, nobody comes home from work and says two betters are going to fall. We need to sell the two better and buy a three better. You know, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, nobody does that. You say, you know, we're going to own this for 10 years. We're going to do it up and uh, it's going to go, it's going to be great. Um, and you should approach investing in the stock market exactly the same way. A hundred percent. I agree with you on that. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Now, I was going, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm finding it really fascinating how much research you've done about the NFTs. Um, and especially with Adidas, when you mentioned that, I actually saw an advertisement that Adidas was hiring um, staff to actually create their NFTs. Um, and I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was crazy how like these real life businesses are getting involved in the metaverse and they're like seeing the trend before other people are really noticing. Oh, we- there are amazing, and you know, there are new businesses that all merge out of this because there are, you know, there are lauded designers out there. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, I can't think of his name right now, Japanese designer. Um, you know, everyone knows Virgil Abloh, who's um, recently passed away. Yeah. Um, but there, there's a Japanese designer out there who is creating, you know, incredible footwear that only exists in the virtual world. And the NFT that you buy. Is a, is, a, is a plate that turns around with the shoes spinning on it. And, you know, eventually you'll be able to wear that shoe in the metaverse. So these things are trading for hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's honestly you know, it's insane. There's a whole other world out there. It's just crazy. Yeah, and for me, part of it, what's interesting is, is the technology behind it and the blockchain, you know, the blockchain is a foundation on which all this stuff is built and particularly the Ethereum blockchain. So to me, that's really interesting. But but I'm aware from experience that these things can blow up, you know, they and blow up in Julia's universe. For Julia's generation, blow up means go up. In my generation, it means go down. Yeah. Right? yeah. I'm in your generation, Roger. So I've seen, <laughs> so, so seen, it. I've seen a lot. Order, um, you know, where, where there's a lot of really fascinating stuff happening, but if it does go down a lot, I think that'll be the time to take advantage of it in a very big way because it's not going away. Yeah, when I first heard about mm. like cryptocurrency um, and I was trying to kind of understand where it would fit in the economy and the market, like how, how it would kind of fit in our real-life situation, and it kept coming back to the blockchain technology behind crypto um, yeah. because that's yeah that's where the valuable um, like technology is, is in the blockchain when, you know, with smart contracts and how it how it's all distributed, how it mitigates fraud um, and all of that. So that's where I kind of saw it. But, you know, as like it's progressing more and now you know that Ethereum is kind of based off that, then it's kind of, I don't know, you can kind of see where it's going with it. I yeah, know. I think the, the, the really interesting or the disappointing part is that the, the blockchain itself, the distributed ledger idea is really disruptive for anyone who's got a register of assets. So, for example, um, you know, think of PEXA, you know, which is the old New South Wales land titles office or the stock exchange, which is building um, the building on the blockchain as well. Um, so, you know, those businesses, a lot of those businesses will be disrupted by the blockchain because the idea of the idea of me transferring money to you via a central bank that takes a fee for that and it, you're paying it a fee to give you security 
Well, if the, if the, if the blockchain can prove that the security exists in a distributed way and you don't need a central organisation that's regulated to provide that security, then suddenly, you know, the old form of doing everything changes because I can transfer money much, much quicker through the blockchain that I can through, you know, legacy systems. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of advantages, but there's a lot of risk. And what's happened is the blockchain itself was a really good idea, but how do you compensate people for managing the blockchain? Mm. Well, you have to you have to pay them in cryptocurrencies, digital currencies. And that's why digital currencies were created to compensate people. And then, of course, these cryptocurrencies started to be traded in their own right and people started speculating on them. And that's what gave the blockchain and crypto a bit of a bad name. But it's it's surviving that, you know, that people are throwing lots and lots of negative news at it and it's surviving and it's still growing. And so that's why I believe that it will be something that we're going to have to pay more and more attention to in the future. I'm sure that's not the direction you wanted to head, um, but, you know, I'm really glad we had the opportunity to talk about it. I'm glad too. It's, this is what happens every time we get a guest on the show. The questions are laid out and then we end up going completely different direction, but it's always interesting. At the end of the day, this is, this is the world we're in and blockchain is, I don't believe, going anywhere either. So when we're talking about investing, this is exactly what we need to be hearing. We need to be actually being aware of what is disrupting. That is a important part of being an investor looking for the disruptors is it going to be a positive disruption is that going to be something that we should be looking into researching and investing in going forward should we be you know putting that on our in our black book so you know i actually totally love that the conversation has gone a little over this way and a little over that way and i'm learning more about this now roger i just wanted to ask speaking of investing we do have a few fun questions and i wanted to know what is your favorite investment and why well, the best investment I've ever made, you know, without sounding churlish, but the best investment that I've made has been in my family, you know, and in my wife, um, Kerry. Uh, she is an absolute delight to me. We've been married for 24 years um, and, you know, I, I, I wake up every day feeling blessed that I married such a great person. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, but uh, in terms of finance, um, probably the best investment that I've ever made it was – didn't give the greatest return. It, it, it doubled over three years. It more than doubled over three years, which is, which is a very good return. But there are other things that have done better than that. But it did it in a very low-risk way. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that I like to do is I like to find businesses or uh, investments that appear undervalued. So often in the stock market, you'll find versions of things that exist outside the stock market and outside the stock market, they sometimes trade at a different price compared to their, you know, compared to their income stream, for example, um, than the stock market listed version. So I found a fund uh, some years ago uh, that was run by Australian Unity, uh, and it was called the uh, Australian Property. Uh, sorry, there's some renovation going on in the background. Um, property renovating properties is not a bad thing to do either, uh, but. This particular trust was the Australian uh, Healthcare Property Trust run by Australian Unity. And then what they do is they own hospitals. Now, owning hospitals is a very, very low-risk business because uh, they're always in need. Um, they're very, very long-term leases, uh, and the hospital operators will, you know, won't want to move hospitals every day because it's incredibly disruptive. 
Uh, and so, you know, and they're, they're an essential critical piece of infrastructure uh, for every modern society. And the volatility, even during the GFC, the global financial crisis back in 2008, 2009, you know, the, the assets moved by 2%. You know, they, the stock market fell by 40 or 50 uh, and these assets fell by 2 you know, they're incredibly uh, stable. Um, and this particular fund was producing a really good yield, was producing a yield of about 10 or 11%. Um, and when I looked at the way they were valuing the portfolio of hospitals, they were using a discount rate to value those hospitals that was much higher than those hospitals were trading, those assets were valued at outside of that portfolio. And so it was undervalued by about 40%. And it was producing an 11% yield and it only offered 2% risk because the volatility was so low. So I thought this is a lay down. So, you know, it was a very, very um, easy investment to make. And so I made a very, very large investment in that. And it, it, it did a really, it generated a really, really great return in a short period of time with very, very low risk. Um, now, I've got much, much more money invested in the stock market and in our own funds. Uh, and they've produced, as I said earlier, they've produced much higher returns, but they're in the stock market, which is which is uh, more volatile than 2%. And so that's why I mentioned it as being a really attractive and exciting investment because it generated high returns with virtually no risk. One thing um, I want to just clarify with our listeners, because we talk a lot about ETFs because that's a really easy way for someone who's starting with a low-cost um, way of getting into investing. Yes. Fund management is a little bit different in that respect and you actually can be exposed to, it's, you know, to other types of businesses that aren't listed, like that actually you'd basically – getting a really, I find a fantastic deal in some, we've got a fund manager that in our portfolio that does private equity, for example. So that's not going to be listed, but you get to be invested in that through the fund manager. So I just wanted to clarify what the difference is there for our listeners. Fund managers, can you, you can go direct to a fund manager, invest your funds or through a financial advisor. Um, often financial advisors use a, a you know, multiple choice of different funds to create a model portfolio for the client. Yeah. So so um, exchange-traded funds are based on – Usually, originally they were based on an index, so the ASX 200, for example, um, or the S&P 500 in the US or the NASDAQ. You know, we've been talking a lot about technology. Most technology companies are listed on the NASDAQ. So you can buy – and this is what's great about uh, exchange-traded funds is you can buy – an index with, you know, a small amount of money, you can get exposure to the whole index, to all, you know, 500 stocks in the S&P 500. And then the, the new generation of ETFs are based on a theme. So the fund, the manager of the ETF, and you're going to have Vinnie Wadira on, in, you know, in the not-too-distant future, you know, they will, what they will do is they will say, okay, we see this theme's becoming really popular. It might be uh, electric vehicles, uh, EVs. Um, or it might be cryptocurrencies. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to create a fund, a, an exchange-traded fund that just owns stocks in that theme. But they are, they are really fund managers because they're picking, you're not picking the stocks, they're picking the stocks that are going to go in that That's theme, right. Right? Yes. So, so it's low cost, which is great, but you do have to rely on their expertise to pick the right things 
to give you that exposure because that theme is going to grow. Cryptocurrencies is going to grow or, or it might not, but will those stocks do well that they've picked in that particular ETF? Um, you're basically buying, in some cases, and, and in the worst cases, you're just buying a fad. You know that will that will will look really good for a time, and then it will disappear. Um, much like you know um, when the car was invented, um, uh, blacksmiths disappeared. You know we don't need blacksmiths like we do uh, in the past. And so you know new technology, and this is the, a really good warning for investors. Just as an aside, and I'll go back to answering your question in just a sec, Amy. Um, it's really important to realise that there is that throughout history there's been technology that changes the world. And it's great, um, but doesn't mean investors make a lot of money out of it. So investors didn't make a lot of money out of out of owning car manufacturers, even though the car changed the world, right? If you'd been in the late 1800s, if you'd been in Germany when Carl Benz drove the first horseless carriage around that park, you know, it was really designed to parade around a park. People used to parade. That's what they did. They walked around a park with a with an umbrella and a really pretty dress uh, and, um, you know, if you had a car, everyone would look at you. And then what happened is his wife, Berta, um, she took, and it was a woman who did this, by the way, she stole the car and she drove to a nearby town, ran out of fuel, went to a chemist and bought all the alcohol at that chemist and, and poured it into the car and set off and went and got some groceries and then came back. So it was Berta that changed the world through the car. But even if you'd been there, even if you'd been there and bought a car manufacturer, well, in the United States, there's been two, no, there's been 1,500 car manufacturers. None of them exist today that haven't been rescued by private equity or the government that are profitable today, except for Tesla. Um, Tesla's come after all of that, but all of them have either gone bust, or all of them, with the exception of Tesla, have either gone bust or had to be rescued. And so even though it changed the world, even though it changed the future of human history, uh, it didn't make investors money. And the same thing can be said for television, same thing for commercial transport, commercial aviation. Um, investors didn't make a lot of money out of owning those businesses. Consumers benefited. So just remember that when it comes to new technology and investing in ETFs, you know, that the, the technology will change the course of human history but it doesn't mean you'll make money out of it. Now, to finish off answering your question, what fund managers do, active fund managers as opposed to index fund managers, what active managers do is we, we, we say, okay, well, the index has got a lot of good companies in it, but it also has a lot of rubbish in it. We don't want to own the rubbish. We just want to own the good companies, and our job is to try and beat the index. And I'm really proud to say that all of our funds – since we started them, have beaten their index, their respective benchmark. So we're doing better than the index. Now, what an ETF manager will tell you, what Vinny will tell you, is if you look at the performance of all the fund managers, a large number of them don't outperform the index. So why bother trying to pick a fund manager that does, because it's really hard, you may as well just buy an index. Well, I can list off the top of my head a dozen fund managers that consistently beat the index by a lot. And so there are active managers out there that beat the index. Um, so there's yeah. merit. What I've done, hopefully, in that answer is I've presented both arguments, and there's merit in, in having both. You know, Absolutely. if you get onto a fad early enough, you can make a lot of money. You know, but when it comes to fads, you want to be in early and out early. Um, you know, whereas. Yeah, with- so, Roger. Um- 
everyone always talks about when the right time to buy the asset is and it's really it's really great because you know you can form a really good foundation on when the right time or what the right asset to purchase is but when is the right time to sell because you never okay. hear, yeah never hear about when people sell the assets and, and when the right time to get out is yeah. yeah, well, this is the problem with, uh, you know, a lot of the platforms that people use to invest in things, you know, the social media, you know, people who are following others on social media, they'll tell you when to get in, but they're not obligated to come back and then tell you, oh, look, that thing that I told you to buy three months ago, I've sold that, you know, it's now time to get out. You know, they don't, they don't do that. I'm often asked, what do I like in the market at the moment? when I appear on television and on radio and I'll happily share what we like at the moment but no one ever comes back and says okay those things that you liked all those years ago do you still like them or have you got out of them now you know that you're right people don't tell you when to sell and so let's start with one approach one approach is buy things invest in things the way and and approach the investment the way you would a marriage till death do us part (laughs) yeah yeah so you buy really high-quality things and, and you're only going to marry someone who's really high-quality, right, that you think is going to last. And, and, and you go into it the same way and you never sell. And if it's a high-quality business that has genuine competitive advantages, there's no need to sell. You know, and in Australia, I would put a business like Reese Plumbing or CSL or Cochlear or ARB, the four-wheel drive aftermarket. Um, parts manufacturer. They're businesses that I can immediately list, or Macquarie Telecom, for example, the data center provider. They're businesses that I would immediately say, I've got no problem buying those today, knowing that I can happily hold them for 10, 15 or 20 years. Yes, the prices will go up and down, but the the businesses will continue to create value. Of course, if management changes, then I have to review them. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why you might have to change your approach because you've gone into it like a marriage, but they haven't been faithful to you. So you need to reappraise the marriage. Right? So you need to say, you know, you need to say, um, you know what, I had some assumptions about this investment, I had some assumptions about this marriage, and now I have to make a really, uh, really serious decision about whether or not I continue to hold it because Roger Brown, who was running ARB, he's not there anymore. He's retired. Or David Tudhope, who's running um, Macquarie Telecom. You know, he he's selling his stake in the business now. So what does that mean? And so you have to reassess. So that could be a reason um, to sell. Uh, another reason to sell is that you believe that the, you bought the business and it was worth a billion dollars uh, on the market. It's now ten billion, but on the market it's ten billion, but it's only worth two billion. You know, the market's got way ahead. So people become so enthusiastic and so enamored with the business and its prospects that they've pushed its price up way beyond what it's really worth. And that could be another reason to sell. But, But the great thing about the stock market and owning a portfolio is that you don't have to sell all of it. You know, in marriage, it's all or nothing, right? You're all in. You can't sort of be half married. It's like you can't be half pregnant. Um, you know, the, the, you're all in. It's the same thing. So with stocks, it's different. You can sell some. You can say, you know what, I'm just going to take the things gone up tenfold and that, that's a huge amount of money and I'm just not sure it's worth this amount. I'm going to take some profits. I'm going to sell some stock and I'm still going to have exposure to it, 
but I'm going to reduce my exposure. I'm going to find something else. The, the, the th- hard thing I find about selling is then you have to make another really smart decision. <laughs> I know. You know? And you have to really You're, back to the nice You're back to I'd the drawing. You're back to the drawing board. <laughs> yeah, I only want to be married once. Yeah. And it's the same thing in stocks. You know, I'd rather reduce the amount of decisions that I have to make. And so when you sell, you 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 are um, you are obligating yourself to then have to make another decision, and that is where do I reinvest that money? Um, so so investing. You know, that's and when would you sell? Approach. When do you think you should sell if you're at a like if the stock's at a loss, for example? Okay, so the question there is, it really comes back to how much research you did at the start. If you did no research to begin with, you just followed someone on Insta who said, "Hey, buy this stock. I think it's going up," or you know, on Twitter, and it goes down, then you've got no basis for having made that investment decision. <laughs> so, <laughs> You got in for no on no research, so you probably should sell. I don't know. I mean, you're, you're completely gambling and speculating. But if you've done your research and there was a thesis behind that investment, then the question is not about whether the stock went down and you're losing money. The question is, is the thesis still true? Is the reason I bought this thing still correct? Do I still believe that this company's technology is going to be in greater demand in five years' time than it is today? Do I believe that it's the leader in its particular field? Or do I now believe that there's new competition emerging that's going to displace this technology and there's a new competitor that's offering a better solution at a cheaper price that's going to put this business uh, business's prospects, uh, it's going to change this business's prospects. It's no longer going to be as profitable as what I thought it was going to be. If that's the case, then you sell. You know, it's about the thesis changing, not the share price changing. That's what I talked about earlier in one of our podcasts, uh, Julia, if you recall, when you, we were talking about the timing the market, and I said it's a very personal thing, but I guess it comes down to the asset that you're holding and what its purpose was. And sometimes it is like the fat. It's like the purpose. It's done. It's, it's, it's sort of had its course. And if it's not serving your portfolio and it's not performing after a period of time and you've been watching other funds do um, better and it worked that uh, those other funds work better you know that you could be able to swap that over sell that fund that's no longer serving its purpose and serving its purpose really is bringing you know bringing in some growth into your portfolio right that's what you're after I mean if that's when you've got to make that call and that's where the research part really plays is is this a fad exactly what you were saying Rod Roger it's is this something that is going to be a long-term investment for us is this something that the you know society is going to continue using is this a gfc kind of proof kind of asset is this like like the hospital like all our you know food and beverages is this something we're always going to need the consumers never not going to need this or is this actually something that technology is sort of okay it's had its use and something else has now replaced it because it's a disruptive industry yeah so like a good example would would a good example be that like the buy now pay later kind of scheme do you think that that's becoming really competitive I think it is becoming really competitive. And you know what? A lot of those businesses haven't made a ton of money yet. Um, And those businesses, in order to grow, they have to borrow more money or they have to raise more capital to grow their book, their book of loans. Um, And the book at the amount of money that they're lending, because they're effectively, uh, you know, effectively what they are is a factoring business. You know, they're buying receivables from a a merchant, from a, a retailer. If you go into the shop and you buy with, Afterpay or Zip Pay or any of those services, what you're doing, what 
what those companies are doing is they're saying to the merchant, they're saying to the retailer, well, that person owes you $150, right? They owe you that money because they've taken that shirt or that dress from your store. They owe you that money. We'll buy that loan, that money they owe you. We'll buy that from you. Let's say it was $150. We'll buy it for, from you for $120 and then we'll collect $150 from the consumer directly. Right? That's a factoring business. They've been around for centuries. Yep. There's nothing new in that business. Yeah. And those businesses don't make a very high margin. They only make a couple of percent, three or four percent. And what and the point you made, Julia, in your question is the right one. There are competitors now coming into the market that are offering retailers not a hundred and twenty for the hundred and fifty dollars that they're owed, but they're offering them a hundred and forty. Wow. So you know they're reducing the profit yeah. that you can make on buying those receivables. And so that's changing the competitive landscape for that industry. Yeah, wow. Never, um, I never considered that because I am, yeah, I am invested in Afterpay and obviously they're being acquired by Square. So I'm having to kind of well, review and think the about leaders it. of the business. You know, yeah. they, they generally know more than you about their business. If they're selling out, then, you know, that might be something you have to investigate. Yeah. 100%. Again, it comes back down to research, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, I hear so many people saying, do your research. But what does that actually mean? Exactly. I, what does it yeah. mean? What does do your research mean? Well, I think the easiest way to answer that question is know the business. Understand how it makes money, um, you know, and find out who the competitors are. And then ask yourself that very simple question. Is this company going to be the leader in its space in 5, 10, 15 years' time because that's the research you have to do. Is this business going to win? And if it's going to be a winner in its space, then you can buy it knowing that you don't have to make another wise decision for another 10 or 15 years. Now, we're running out of time and I wanted to – we did mention your book, so I'm just going to put it up here because we also create little reels. So this is – Can I just say while you're holding the book up, can I just say we're currently, if you go to rogermontgomery.com, um, we're offering a two-for-one Christmas deal at the moment. Um, so if you buy a book, you'll get a second one that you can give to somebody else for Christmas for free. Fantastic. That's a great offer. And we're also going to be running a competition so a few of our listeners can get their hands on this as well. Um, now, how do we get, how do people who are loving what you're saying follow you, um, know where, where to catch you? Because you've also mentioned you're in media, so you've been, you're doing some radio, television. Yeah, so I've been doing the radio and television now for 15 or 20 years, been doing that weekly for a very, very long time. So if you, you know, you can just go to our blog. It's probably best to go to rogermontgomery.com. You can see all the media republished there. We're on social, so, you know, you can go, you can follow us there. But if you subscribe to the blog, what you do is you get alerts to, you know, really important posts that we think are, 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 are worth paying attention to and, and are timely. Um, and then in terms of our funds management business, Montgomery Investment Management, the web address is montinvest.com and there are, there are, you know, we, we have a, a variety of funds uh, that give people exposure either to um, large co- companies in Australia or smaller companies in Australia. And what's exciting about the small companies is you, you, you buy them early and you ride their journey to becoming a large company. So there's a lot of value that can be created there. And then we have the same again through po- our partnership with Poland Capital, uh, Boca Raton-based fund manager, 
um, and they've got some of the best performing funds in the world and they have a large cap global fund and also a small and mid cap global fund. And next year we're going to be launching uh, an emerging companies fund with Poland as well. And what's exciting about that is they're going to be investing in regions that are the fastest growing regions in the world, um, you know, where the, where the population is really young, where the workforce is growing really rapidly uh, and taking advantage of that. Fantastic. We'll put all of those links in the show notes so when people are listening, they can actually jump on there. But that's – sorry. Well, let me just say this. Do you know what? It doesn't matter how much money you make. At the end of the day, all you have is relationships. So when, it, when, you know, when, when life turns sour, when everything goes badly, um, you know, you, you can't you – know, the money can go. Um, you know, a lot of things that you thought were solid can, can you know, really vaporize. And so what you're left with is your relationships. So no matter what your journey, make sure you invest in relationships. That's beautiful advice. Cool. That was great. No, awesome. Thank you so much again, Roger. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. See you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening today. Before you go, I want to remind you that everything discussed is general in nature. We are unaware of your personal circumstances, so the information we have discussed may not be right for you. It is important to consider your personal situation and seek financial advice from a licensed advisor. Amy Baker is an authorised representative of Lifestyle Asset Management Propriety Limited, Australian Financial Service Licence 288241. Recap Advice is a trading name of Recap Enterprises Propriety Limited, ABN 226078542400, a corporate authorised representative of Lifestyle Asset Management, AFSL 288241. I would also like to acknowledge the Bidigal and Gadigal people who are the traditional custodians of this land. I would like to pay respects to the elders, both past and present, of the Bidigal and Gadigal nations and extend that respect to other Aboriginal pe- people. Thank you for listening and don't forget to share the love by sharing this podcast. Have a wonderful day wherever you are.